This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we've been talking about the continued attacks against Asian communities and how leaders in our area are fighting for change. This week marks one year since a white gunman entered three Asian-owned spas in Atlanta, killing eight people. Six of them were Asian women. The shootings brought national attention and outrage, but reports of anti-Asian hate are still on the rise today. To understand the recent surge in violence, many point to the long history of discrimination against Asian communities in the U.S. and the lack of Asian American history being taught in classrooms. Lawmakers and activists want to change that, so starting this fall, Asian American history will be required teaching at every public elementary and high school in Illinois. It's the first state to implement such a requirement. Now, for a primer, we'll revisit a conversation we had with a scholar who wrote the book on the topic. That's Erica Lee, professor at the University of Minnesota and the author of The Making of Asian America, A History. We started by exploring the connection between Asia and the United States. So just like we've begun to understand how the beginnings of U.S. history is really rooted in much larger global contests and trends, we also have to understand that, that those are the roots of Asian American history. Asian American history begins long before the United States was even a country. I mean, I think most listeners will remember that Christopher Columbus sailed across the ocean blue in 1492 searching for Asia, right? And then he, <laughs> he accidentally landed in the Americas and... Um, he still thought that he was in, in Asia. But that trip and the successive connections of Spanish explorers and Portuguese and, of course, connecting uh, other European powers to, to the Americas are amongst the foundations that eventually led Asians to sail on some of those same ships as sailors, as servants, as slaves, ending up in colonial Mexico, uh, in New Spain, in the 1500s. And then eventually we get to the United States as a, as a country mm-hmm. and as a new nation. And those ties connecting the U.S. and to Asia continue, eventually leading to more and more people coming over. So when did Chinese immigrants begin to arrive in the continental U.S.? Well, we have actually the first Asian to have landed in Morro Bay in 1587 was a Filipino soldier, so go, a sailor, sorry, so going way back to the, the 16th century. We believe that um, Chinese sailors first arrived in Baltimore in 1784. The first Chinese woman recorded to land in the United States was was brought by uh, U.S. traders who exhibited her in New York City in 1834. Um, So these are important first stories that help to lay the groundwork for later uh, groups to come in, in much larger numbers. Well, digging more into those stories, Professor Lee, they were mostly men that came over, correct? Absolutely. What were their lives like? Up through World War II. Um, And this is a a pattern that's common in immigration history generally. Um, Most first-time immigrants up through World War II are men. They're working class. They're either being recruited deliberately to work in various industries. So for Asians, Chinese were recruited to build the Transcontinental Railroad, which is another tidbit of Asian-American history that many listeners might know. 
the Japanese, Korean, Filipinos were recruited to Hawaii to work on the sugar plantation. South Asians were were brought in from Canada as well as from across the Pacific to uh, to mill lumber in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And they, eventually, they they hoped that their families might join them. But like many other immigrants, they they really weren't sure. So many thought, I'll work here for a few years, maybe save up enough money, and then return home where family resides, where maybe I can buy back that farm. And I think for them, uh, the growing anti-Asian racism and sentiment that they felt was, was also a factor in them feeling shunned in the United States and helped to propel many of them back to Asia in those early years. Yeah, tell me more about that, because there there were enough Chinese immigrants in the U.S. by the 1880s that we did start to see a backlash from the U.S. government. What exactly happened? Yes, you know, that backlash, it begins long before the 1880s. It really is rooted in some of the older historic ideas that that Americans and then Europeans had about Asia as this exotic region that was uh, diametrically opposite from the West and, and viewed Asia either through two different lenses, one being a place that uh, deserved colonization and uh, conversion into Christianity or a threat, a threat that if, if not curbed and if not dealt with properly, the teeming millions of Asians would flood over into the United States, take over our land, displace white Americans. I mean, I think if listeners think about some of the rhetoric related to the immigration debates over the U.S. southern border and transpose it a century and a half ago, that is what Americans were feeling. That's the way in which they were viewing Asian immigration. And of course, the ways in which you know Chinese were and a- other Asians were situated in in America's race relations was was as more like African Americans, more like American Indians than like European immigrants. So this backlash fuels not only state policies but federal policies. And by 1882, U.S. Congress passes the. Chinese Exclusion Act, the first federal law to single out an immigrant group for exclusion based on their race and class. Yeah, there are many stories uh, in your book uh, about Asian Americans across many decades facing severe discrimination, Professor Lee, uh, even stories about naturalized American citizens uh, not only having their citizenship questioned, but sometimes even having their citizenship revoked. Um, But we also, at some point, we do start to see Asian American success stories. Um, We see successful businessmen in Chinatowns, uh, you know, across the country, uh, West Coast, East Coast, uh, successful farmers in California. Uh, Did the success of Asian Americans lead to backlash from white Americans? Yes, you know, one of the key motivations surrounding the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II was the feeling that Japanese Americans who had been growing by number were becoming very successful uh, farmers up and down the Pacific Coast, that they were a growing economic threat and that not only were they suspected of being loyal to Japan rather than to the United States, but 
there was great economic resentment that um, that they were achieving um, so much success in their agricultural businesses. You also mentioned the southern border in this conversation. Now, after the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, we saw a lot of Chinese immigrants getting into the U.S. across the southern border. I think you called them the first undocumented immigrants? Yes, the first the first undocumented immigrants. Yeah. Also across the U.S. northern border as well from Canada. And again, I think if listeners think about how migration works today, you know, we, we close up one gate, uh, we block one entry point, but because in the United States we still depend on immigrant labor, in many cases they are still explicitly being recruited or they want to come and join family here, migrants will find another way. They will find another way into the United States. So we do see in the 1880s, Chinese uh, just, you know, instead of docking in San Francisco, they'll dock in Acapulco. And there were coyotes <laughs> during that time period as well who were guiding Chinese uh, across the border. Eventually, Mexico, Canada, many countries throughout Latin America also passed restrictive and exclusion laws that, that banned Chinese immigrants. So we see how our policies, even back then, you know, had international repercussions, transnational repercussions beyond just what we are doing here in the United States. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're speaking with Erica Lee. She is a Regents Professor of History and Asian American Studies at the University of Minnesota. She's also author of the book, The Making of Asian America, A History. Professor Lee, could you talk a bit about immigrants from India and Pakistan? When does the South Asian story begin in America, and how has it evolved over the years? South Asian migration to the Americas is actually one of the, um, has one of the longest histories. One of the stories that I open up the book with is the story of Mira Katrina de San Juan, who was a South Asian woman. She was um, enslaved in the 1500s, um, 1600s. She was brought on a, a, a boat to to Mexico where she um, she eventually became free. She became a, a healer, and she became a, a really a heroine to her local community. She's just one of these early stories that show the connection between South Asia and the United States. We don't have um, larger numbers coming until the early 1900s, some coming down from Canada and then directly into San Francisco um, by 1910 or so. And it's a smaller migration than, say, Chinese, but they are treated very, very similarly. Um, if you look at the newspaper headlines at the time, they're uh, labeled an Asiatic invasion, a Hindu invasion, even though the majority of migrants were uh, practiced the Sikh religion. And they also faced immigration exclusion. A 1917 Immigration Act specifically targeted them. And then, as you alluded to before, some had been able to become naturalized U.S. citizens, which was extremely rare Mm -hmm. for Asian immigrants. But by the 1920s, the anti-Asian movement had grown (laughs) to such a degree that the U.S. government deliberately organized denaturalization campaigns and went around and 
found those few South Asian Americans who had become naturalized citizens and denaturalized them. I would love people to, if they're interested in learning more about this history, I'd love them to do a search for Kala Bagai. Her, her name is spelled K-A-L-A, and the last name is B-A-G-A-I. She is one of those early migrants, along with her husband and children, who came to the United States. They faced tremendous discrimination. Her husband was denaturalized. He was so bereft and so frustrated and depressed that he actually took his life in 1928, leaving Kala and her family behind. She persevered her children and she eventually became U.S. citizens. She became a leader in her community. She's become such a source of inspiration to Asian Americans and especially South Asian Americans that just this past winter, they organized a campaign to rename a Berkeley city street in California to be called after her. So now there is a Kala Bagai Way in Berkeley. And oh. it's just a, a wonderful story of perseverance, continuing inspiration in the face of such rampant discrimination that so many face. Mm-hmm. Immigrants from each country had their own unique experiences, but you you write about how many Asian immigrant populations have led transnational lives. Can you explain? Just like so many immigrant groups, you know, just because people cross borders doesn't mean that they necessarily forget everything um, back home or cut all ties, whether they be family or um, or home or political um, or economic. And so it, this isn't just a, a new phenomenon, but, it, but an older one. Uh, we have seen the increase in transnational ties, meaning, you know, remaining connected across borders in more recent decades because it's so much easier to travel back and forth. Um, it's so much easier to keep in touch. You don't have to wait for the, the blue airmail letters from decades past. You can text. <laughs> you can right. share social media simultaneously. Um, so this is, this is a feature not just of contemporary immigrant life, but Really, as all of us have become more global, we're, we're more connected than ever before. You're in Minnesota, where there's actually a, a large population of Hmong Americans. Um, 1.2 million refugees from Southeast Asia, uh, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Lao, Hmong. Uh, they came to the U.S. starting in 1975. So what were they fleeing and what did they find in America? War, persecution, so many refugee populations had been displaced many times before they actually left their homelands, right? So bombing campaigns and and fleeing when politics um, made them all of a sudden on the wrong side of of the war. Um, So, yes, in in Minnesota and up in up and down the Midwest, there are vibrant populations of Vietnamese, Hmong, Cambodian, Lao um, refugees, and now first and second generation Americans. Um, they entered a United States that was, on the one hand, you know, trying to uh, recommit itself to humanitarian values and seeing the um, the importance of, of providing a safe refuge for those who had fought on our behalf in the wars in Southeast Asia. 
but also a time period in which there's growing anti-immigrant sentiment, there's a backlash to civil rights movements. Um, and so when they, when they arrive, they're, they're often uh, facing multiple challenges. And here in Minnesota, here in the Twin Cities, uh, many Hmong Americans are facing, continue to face the same kinds of police violence that African Americans Based here and in so many other cities as well. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a new edition of your book with a new postscript on anti-Asian racism and Asian American activism during the pandemic. You write, as a historian, I know that the value of teaching and learning Asian American history is not just about filling gaps. It's also about combating racism. Can you talk a bit more about that? I am so thrilled that Illinois is the first state to require Asian American history for um, high school students. This is just phenomenal and I hope is a leader uh, for the rest of the country. You know, what we've seen this past year during the pandemic uh, is going to be recognized as one of those enormous turning points, not just in Asian American history, but American history, both the dramatic, you know, historic rise in anti-Asian incidents, but also Asian Americans' racial reckoning, a a rise in activism across so many different sectors, Mm -hmm. um, addressing this issue in journalism, in academia, in, uh, you know, on the streets, etc. And this, the teaching of history is part of that movement. We have to help our youngest students um, understand the deep, long history of Asian Americans, not only what's happened to them, but also what they have done. This is absolutely part of an anti-racist education that has to happen before uh, we, right. have a, we have to respond to another tragedy like the, the murders of, of, of Asian Americans in Atlanta or this rise in hate incidents. That was Professor Erica Lee of the University of Minnesota. She's the author of The Making of Asian America, a History. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.